everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher, or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer, or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Hello, Dr. Tay. Hello. So excited to be here. Yes, thank you. You know, our podcast is, we're, we, we are at like, I think, 85,000 downloads. And we don't repeat very often. So if we have a repeater, it is of the utmost of compliments around here. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be back and to dive more in and see what we're going to chat about today. Yeah, well, I know that's what's fun about these podcasts that kind of lead up to and surround the conferences. We don't really plan. We just kind of talk about, you know, like I, as I just told you before we hit record, I just kind of like to geek out with people and introduce my speakers for the conference to the audience and help folks learn, you know, as much about special education and advocacy as we can. So for folks that did not hear your first episode, why don't you just give us a brief um, introduction? Absolutely. So I'm Dr. Taylor Day. I go by Dr. Tay on all things social media, but I am a child psychologist and I specialize in providing neurodivergent affirming care for autistic children and their families. And I got into this field because I grew up with a brother who was diagnosed at 23 months of age. So autism became, and we're 10 years apart. So I was 12. Autism quickly became part of my life. I, I was aware of it. And basically, I realized that there were things about the field that I didn't love and the supports that are provided to families and realized by owning my own practice and doing things doing things in a way that I really thought were for families' benefits. And then also as a clinician can benefit me and clinicians I continue to hire on because there is a lot of burnout in this field. And so I think bringing it together to provide the highest quality of care has always been the mission of what I'm doing. Yeah. And you aren't hampered when you, when you're working independently, you aren't hampered by insurance and referral networks and all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So much better in my own personal life. I, mixed together concierge medical services and insurance-based medical services, as well as Eastern and Western medicine. And, you know, there's the right balance for everybody, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's some advantages of being a concierge practice where I really, truly go above and beyond what you would find in the traditional medical system. I mean, and related to the work you do, Ashley, one of my favorite things is like going to IEP meetings with families, helping them to advocate, connecting with teachers and administration of like, how can we really support this child so that there's continuity between the home and what's going on and school where this child is spending the large majority of their time. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's an interesting point because so many people in our spaces, in the autism community, developmental disability community, intellectual disability community, and just general disability community have tons of people that they rely on. And how great and how easy is it to say to your private tutor, hey, can you come to my IEP meeting? I'll be happy to pay your hourly rate. Well, they're building, you know, 
30 to $150 an hour or 30 to $200 an hour, whatever it is. But you, people have a harder time understanding how to ask their pediatrician or their psychologist, their medical health providers that question because A, we don't understand as consumers, patients, how that's billed. And honestly, like we never even think it's possible. So when you can find people that own these concierge practices, then that's usually kind of built into the model too, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. I build it. I build one monthly retainer and that is included as part of the monthly retainer is some of that, you know, advocacy work and that connection. And although I wish this wasn't the case, it the reality is, is I find I tell parents all the time, like, I know you're you're saying the same things as I am, but by bringing me in a lot of times school systems or even other, you know, medical clinical professionals will listen to me more than they will for you. So let me be your voice. And that's the thing behind the scenes. We're having all these conversations of what's important to you. What do you really want? What do you want them to hear? And how can I be basically in some ways the mouthpiece to be able to make that happen? But when you bring in a specialist like you or a an, an advocate, somebody that's trained as an advocate, which I know you have training and advocacy as well. The other thing that we do that sometimes we don't even know we're good at doing because we are good at it is we reframe with an objectivity that in your case is more clinical. And like, that's one of the reasons last summer I got trained in Orton-Gillingham reading. And the reason is because I knew enough from being a teacher and from parenting my own son and from working a thousand cases, plus or minus, that that Orton-Gillingham was right for, you know, a certain profile of student. But in every single table, every single IP table, I'd say, you know what, I think this is a great place to stop. And then I would go spend three or four hours reading and kind of tying my research into that kid. When you can bring in experts that are trained in things, like I went and got trained in Orton Gillingham so that at the table I could be efficient and objective and reasonable, it's so much more efficient and that makes the advocacy more effective. So stuff that you can say about behavior or regulation or, um, you know, feelings, that kind of stuff is so much, it's like on the tip of your tongue faster, right? Like. And you don't even realize you're doing that. And I think the other thing that I find myself doing a lot too is making sure that both parties feel feel that they're understood and that they're heard as part of this conversation. So it's not, when I come in, it's not like, oh, we only know and what you're doing as a school, you know, isn't working. It's like, okay, I recognize this as an additional burden. Where can we kind of meet in the middle knowing that that additional burden is going to give us the bang for our buck? But not just coming in and being like, you need to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, I think if you are someone in this space, especially as a clinician, I think it's easy to come in and be like trying to tell the schools what to do. But at the end of the day, that's that's not going to get you anywhere because it's then becomes an us against them. And so how can you be that middle ground to help both parties feel 
seen, heard, and understood, knowing also that that's going to get you that end result quicker. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. If we go in, like, I don't really love the term mansplaining because I think people of all gender identities mansplain, but, but we all know what mansplaining means. And you're right. If we go in and we just start spouting off information and cramming it down their throats, it's not going to be interpreted with any kind of validity. And actually the, the research, like the negotiation research shows that people's egos show up a whole lot faster when you do that because there's no buy-in. Yep. And so if we just start spouting off information, people kind of assume this mentality of like, you wanted it. And they almost don't hope that it works for the child because like it's your idea, not theirs. And they're like, well, I knew better. So our data is going to stink and we're going to have to go through this for six months in order for me to get where I want to be. Yeah. Um, so it creates more adversarial like conflict in the, in the team meeting. Yeah. What are some trends that you're seeing in schools and communities where your clients and, and patients are going? Do you call them clients or patients? I go back and forth, honestly. Where are your people? Right, exactly. I think some of it is working in the medical model. I was like, okay, like in an academic medical setting, I was like, they are patients. But then sometimes I wonder how affirming the word patients are. So sometimes yeah. I apply it. So I go back and forth. Yeah. So trends. I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, I mean, one of the biggest things that comes to mind for me is this this desire of families as they educate themselves to be more affirming in approaches. And our current systems aren't always set up in the most affirming ways. And so this is, I think, one of the spaces that I find is working with parents, which little sneak peek, this is what I'm going to talk about in the caregiver track is how parents can advocate to bring these neurodivergent affirming practices into systems, in particular the school, when they don't already exist. What to look for, how to advocate for that, you know, and also how to ensure these things are actually happening, like, you know, is agreed upon at the table. And so I think that's one of the biggest shifts that I'm seeing right now is that families are wanting that. And I think a lot of it comes from social media that they're consuming and realizing that there are different ways than maybe some of our traditional practices. And the other piece, though, that I think is important to hear, and even when I started venturing into this neurodivergent affirming approaches space and the concept of neurodiversity, I was a little bit nervous to be candid that it was like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, like that saying where it's like, wait, we're going to let go of everything we know. Yeah. I actually don't find that to be the case. I, you know, as a clinician, I'm bringing in evidence-based practices all the time, but sometimes it's slightly tweaking them. And also then listening in, in the work I do to autistic voices of what have they experienced? What are they saying? And I love being kind of that, that middle ground that, again, brings both perspectives together because I don't think it needs to be an either or. Like sometimes I think on social media, it can be, you know, construed as, and that's okay. I think some of that extreme thought pattern has to happen in order for 
us to make the swing towards more affirming practices. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people like the, the, the people that are more hesitant to incorporate neurodiversity affirming practices are like dealing with the control, right? Like I said it, you do it. Or I know this is best for you. You still have to learn geography or like, no, at some point you're going to have to sit in your desk. And I don't think that anybody disagrees with the fact that we want students to learn and we want students to be able to have healthy relationships and to find a, a, an engaging place in their communities and that sort of thing. So neurodiversity affirming practices does not say, I know you, you aren't cool with loud noises, so you never have to learn how to deal or how to incorporate yourself into an environment where there's loud noises or high demand or whatever it is. We have to try to figure out practices and strategies, as you said, that are evidence-based in order to help our students to succeed in those environments and with those demands in light of their specific profiles, right? Like, I know as a parent, I was like, okay, yeah, but when are we actually going to start to learn anything? Like, the mother knows best kind of idea. Right. And I think that it, there is a shift on what learning looks like in this way. And I think there's really two key ingredients that you have to have in order for someone to learn. And I don't think we talk about these enough. I think that it, what they are, are regulation and engagement. If we don't have those pieces, children don't learn. And when we're trying to force them to do something, guess what? They're not regulated. I was actually, quick aside, I was sitting, this was with a a preschooler, but I was sitting and I was observing as part of my like care coordination, I was observing another practitioner do intervention with this child. And the interventionist had this child blocked off where the child was in front of them and there was like a gate behind them with, you know, their legs. And I was, I won't lie, I was very uncomfortable. And yes, the child was engaging, but was so dysregulated. And so this interventionist left and Listen, this interventionist was incredible at what she does. So it's yeah. a disc. But then I have this open conversation with mom about like, okay, here's what I'm seeing. Here's where it wouldn't be neurodivergent affirming. Here's how we could switch it to be neurodivergent affirming. Yeah. What you want as a parent. And one of our decision makings was mom was in the room. He at this point is loves mom, very, you know, wants to be around mom. So it's like, okay, well, let's try to observe when mom's not in the room. What does that look like? Maybe the strategies would shift, right? And yes, this child needs to learn these skills, but there also are ways where maybe the child's able to roam and is coming back over. And what was really cool by the end of session, this child, I'll just be candid, it was an occupational therapy session. So the first half was focused on fine motor and that's where some of the, the distress was. But the second was more on the sensory pieces. This child was so engaged with the sensory pieces, which I think also shows that we still can get that learning and that engagement and all of it happening on using a more child-led approach. And so those two factors are so important. And I actually don't hear them talked about enough. Is, is the child regulated and is the child engaged? Yeah. And it's like making, it's like organizing, you know, it's beginning of the year, people are organized in their closets and every, all the organizational things are on sale. It's like organizing your closet. You have to sometimes make a mess. You have to back up and go back into the basics. And or 
better to be productive. So sometimes we have to focus on those two components in order to get the progress. It's, it's about relationships, it's about trust building, and ultimately it's about the internal neurology, the internal workings of that person's brain and body, right? Yeah, exactly. And like the sitting example, we're going to get there. It's just a different path to get there by being using these more affirming and supportive approaches than, say, more compliance-based approaches. Well, no, you have to sit because I say you have to sit. And, you know, it's interesting because I was very much trained in a behavioral lens. There are times and places. What I find is for autistic children, they often are not the most effective, but in particular, and I know we touched on this before we hit record, Autistic children that have the PDA profile, which stands for pathological demand avoidance or the autistic community prefers persistent drive for autonomy. What it is, is that the nervous system gets so dysregulated with all these demands that nothing happens. So when you have a child with that profile, I will tell you that using these compliance-based strategies and these more behavioral-oriented strategies will backfire. I see this I in my practice right now. I have a kid I'm doing an evaluation with that that's all that they tried. And at this point, this this child is in burnout mode. And even getting him to school is, you know, that's a feat in itself. And so sometimes we, I like to, I love the closet organization. I also think of that it as slowing down to speed up. We have to yeah. be okay with that slow period. Yeah. Well, like external motivators. I mean, so if you're a child, if you were thinking to yourself, my child does not work for a reward, we just can't find a reward that will work. Or even if we switch up the rewards, my child will not work for the reward. Then maybe consider if there's some kind of internal switch that we need to turn on. And it's not motivation. That's the regulation. It has nothing to do with motivation. That's part of the problem for the child is they want to perform. They want to be a part of that community. They want to learn. But there's something else that we have to address first, right? Exactly. Dr. Ross Green, he writes the book, The Explosive Child, says children will do well if they can. They want to do well. And so that's some of, we have to understand that they do want to do well, but they're not being set up for success to do well. So I love this, exactly what you say. If you're finding all this resistant with rewards, how can we completely switch the approach? Stop looking for those external motivators that is going to get this child and understand what is not set up optimally in the environment, which might be some of their own internal like regulation, but what is not set up optimally for them to be able to do their best like they want to. And don't you think, Taylor, that so much of this has to do with provoking empathy with the people on the team? Because you and I, you know, I mean, we have both lived with people that um, we know desire that kind of (laughs) compliance or task performance. They, they, yeah, they desire that kind of performance, like outward performance, but they're just so confused on the inside that stuff's just not churning out of them. And I have to say that in IEP meetings so often, like you realize that little Johnny wants to behave 
And there is a mind-body disconnect. There is a, a disconnect that is getting in the way. He doesn't want to say those words. He doesn't want to have those behaviors. They just happen. And so, like, I talk a lot to my clients and here at Ashley Barrow Company about trying to get the IEP team to understand. Do you have any ideas for, like, really infusing a lot of empathy into advocacy? Yeah. I mean, one thing comes to mind, I actually, I have my own podcast um, called Evolve with Dr. Tay, and I just recorded an episode with a parent, and this was the perfect example. So I'm just going to take her word. Yeah. So she's the neurodiversity mom um, on Instagram. Her name's Catherine, but she said she was watching her child at the time go through ABA therapy, applied behavior analysis, and the child was lining up cars and the therapist would come in and mess them all up. And yeah because trying to teach the child how to play in a different way. And the mom said, oh, I just felt bad, right? Like, what would it be like if I worked hard to create this thing and someone just comes and messes it up? And I was like, that's such a beautiful way to express this, right? That like, imagine that strategy happening to you as an adult, right? What would that be like, you know, if, if you're in a business meeting and someone is saying, hey, I need you to stop fidgeting right now, right? Stop playing with your pen. And I need you to actually make sure your eyes are on me at all times. Think about what that experience would be like for you. You're going to be like constantly picking up the pen, putting it down because oh, I'm not supposed to be doing that. You're going to miss probably some key piece in that, that meeting, right? And so that's what a lot of times we're asking our children to do is some of these things that are actually taking more of their working memory, more of their attention and their focus in order to try to regulate themselves in order to pay attention. And so, and that's one of the ways I think that empathy can be created though, is what would that be like in your world? What would that feel like? And if it's not feeling supportive and affirming, then it probably isn't for the child. That's exactly what I do. That's exactly what I do. Like, what, what's your thing? I like to touch the top of my head and I'm always running something underneath my fingernail. That's what I do. Don't you guys do something? Or like today, I, I just put this on my story. Today, I have like really, I don't know, if like the TV screen shows or the computer screen shows proportion, but I have really small hands and feet. And so like taking a, a this is just a regular like Hydro Flask sized bottle, but it's hard for me to hold. And today I was just filling it up and the darn thing fell and I had water all over the place. And I was like, oh, like irritated about my hands. Imagine if you were irritated about your behavioral regulation and you were all day long, every single day. It'd be pretty hard to learn. So something as silly as small hands, that example, if you used that at the IEP table, they'd be like, oh, I get that. Like, yeah, that would be annoying. And now there's water all over. Everybody can relate to that. Can you relate to the to to not being able to feel your body in space because your proprioception is off? Not as easy, right? So we can draw those parallels. I think it's super helpful. Yeah, and I think sometimes it sounds extreme, but like in some ways, some of the things that we're asking, you know, children to do is to change this about them. Imagine if I said to you, well, you need to grow bigger hands. Why are you not focused on growing bigger hands? That's your solution. That would be incredibly, incredibly invalidating and also impossible, probably. I don't know from a, 
uh, right. like a rug. Well, and, and everybody, so everybody would react differently. Like when you said that, I was tempted to give you a, a middle finger, which is funny because it's ineffective because it's so little. My husband says I should do two and put them together. When people talk about my hands, I want to give them the middle finger, but then it's ineffective. It's ironic. Who sings that? Isn't it ironic? Yeah, yeah. I think but so. then other times I want to be like, like sassy about it. And sometimes if I, if you catch me on a frustrated day, I'm going to get frustrated and that's human nature. And I have a largely typical neurological profile and that's me reacting that way. And so, and I, and I'll say at an IEP meeting, you see me as the blonde lady with the JD and the big smile and you think, man, she must be effective. But I like had a major flip out about water on the side of my fridge today. And so, like, imagine how little Susie's feeling. Yeah, I, I think, okay, the horse is dead. I've, we've beat it. Yeah, but one cool thing, a little sneak peek, too, is this is what I'm talking about in the teacher track, is how to, I mean, I'm framing it as emotion regulation, but I'm going to give a sneak peek. A core, core piece of this is how can you validate the emotions that are coming up with these experiences, right? Of, like, that you're describing all of this, the frustration and, you know, maybe to even some sadness of it. Like, how can we actually say, hey, it is okay to feel that way. And by feeling that way, though, we don't need to all of a sudden make your hands grow. It truly is. It is okay to feel that way. Okay, what accommodations then can we put in place? And what skills can we teach you to help you regulate your emotions? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How can we accommodate it and how can we support it so that we are learning and we are assimilating um, in a very, very affirming way? It's going to be so good. I am so excited to have you at the conference. Check out Dr. Tay's uh, sessions at the conference on January 20th, 2020. Lots of information over on the website and on Instagram. Taylor, tell everybody where they can find your podcast information, membership information. Where are you? Absolutely. So I, I love being able to provide a wide range of information in different places. So I'm on Instagram and TikTok at the Dr. Tay with period. So the period, DR period, Tay. Love providing autism education and talking about neurodivergent affirming practices. My podcast is Evolve with Dr. Tay, Real Conversations Designed for Autism Parents. That's on any podcast platform. And if you're interested in learning more about my services, maybe you have an autistic child or you're suspecting autism and need an evaluation, just email me. So it's admin at drtaylorday.com and we can set up a free consult call to talk about my approaches, what I offer, and if it would be a good support for your family or not. Yay. Check her out. Dr. Tay, are you a Swifty? I am. I'm How did you- a diehard, diehard, but I love her. And we all are now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How did you feel about that like varsity letter jacket with Tay Tay over by the pocket? Oh, I love it. I love it. So good. Yeah. We need to get you one of those. I know. I really should. I never, th- I never made that connection until right now. I just, I made it earlier and I was saving it for the end. Love it. 